Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer. Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in and after treatment. Like what you hear? Have something to add? Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast for young adults living with cancer. This is your host for the episode, Brady Lucas. Today on Life on Pause, we have with us Kayla Conover. Kayla, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So we're going to dive right in right away. Kayla, medicine has always been part of your life. What inspired you to become a nurse? So I was in my previous bachelor's degree in public health, and I was doing my senior internship. At that time, I was feeling pretty optimistic and enthusiastic about working out in the community until I started doing research and outreach in the community and saw the impact that nurses had. I was doing research with trauma patients and nurses just had this wonderful touch to them and were so good with working with people and did so well with the patients that were impacted by trauma. And it was watching those nurses in action when I was doing my previous line of work that influenced me to go into nursing. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. And what type of nurse are you currently? I'm a trauma surgical ICU nurse. So I really didn't stray too far from what I was doing before. I've kind of stayed true to my roots. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know medicine also kind of played a personal impact in your life. So you shared previous to me about a cancer diagnosis as a child, but also kind of where we're coming at at this point of your life. Can you walk us through a little bit about your health history? Yes. When I was seven years old, I was in a car accident and was diagnosed with this rare form of like a traumatic large cell granuloma in my left temporal area. Pretty straightforward. It was benign. Multiple surgeries and revisions led a very very normal life afterward. Last year in July of 2021, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And that life has been anything but normal since then. uh, And has been very, very different. I've been undergoing pretty intense treatment since July of last year. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know, obviously, it's not easy for anyone to hear Can you kind of walk us through a little bit of the symptoms that you had leading up to the diagnosis more recently? So in about December of 2020, January of 2021, I started experiencing some abdominal pain and cramping. At that time, I was in my first year of nurse anesthesia school. I thought that it was stress. I thought it was maybe IBS. I thought maybe it was something that I was eating that I was sensitive to and started to try to eliminate foods, thinking it was my diet. It continued to get, not necessarily get worse, but it just became more and more pervasive, more a part of like my everyday life that I would have like this abdominal discomfort and this cramping and was given some pretty poor medical advice from someone who wasn't my doctor. And I thought, well, 
maybe it will just get better. Maybe I'm doing too much between school and work. School work and a, and a new puppy and our living situation that my husband and I were in with our apartment wasn't super restful and we were in the process of buying a house in last year's crazy housing market. So there was just, there was a lot on my plate, right? I've got school, I've got work, I've got a puppy, I'm moving. And in June of 2021, my pain got dramatically worse to the point where I started to have to actually take time off of work because it was so severe leading up to July 4th weekend where I was supposed to finally stop working so that I could focus on school full time. My program was going to transition to a full time basis, so I was going to have to stop working no matter what. But my pain, my abdominal pain was so severe that I was doubled over in pain. And my husband, you know, being in the medical field, you tend to downplay a lot of things. Clearly, you know, I'm going into seven months of this abdominal pain and I've, I've downplayed it this entire time. My husband told me, if you don't let me take you to the emergency room today, you are not allowed to complain about this abdominal pain ever again. And that was enough to be like, well, okay, <laughs> if I'm not allowed to complain about it anymore, he, he, he really thinks that I should go. And against my better judgment at the time, because I didn't want to go to the emergency room, spend hours waiting for abdominal pain. Being in healthcare, I know how it goes. You go into the emergency room, you have these long wait times. It's not super urgent because I'm not dying. I'm bound to be there all night long. But they, they got me in pretty quick. They did a CT scan. The emergency room doctor told me, well, it could be ulcerative colitis or it could be cancer. And I was like, well, it can't be cancer. I feel great. It's probably ulcerative colitis. You should just let me go home and we'll figure this out after the holiday weekend. It's the holiday weekend and no one's going to do anything with me if I get admitted anyway. No one's going to give me my colonoscopy. No one's going to care. So I, I get through the weekend and my parents work in healthcare as well. My, my father is a physician. My dad, is, my dad told me, hey, I really want to see your CT scans. Like, I want to look at them myself. Is there any way that you could transfer them to, to Penn State so that I can have somebody look at them and give a second opinion? And I'm going through, like, the portal. I'm trying to figure out how to send them to Penn State. And I'm reading my radiology reads myself. And as a nurse, I read radiology reads from a radiologist all the time for my patients. Clear as day in my radiology read. It does not mention ulcerative colitis. It mentions very specifically consistent with malignancy and metastatic disease, which was not what an emergency room doctor had told me. If someone had told me that night when I was in the emergency room that my scans were very suspicious for cancer, I would have been much more amicable to staying and being admitted and hopefully trying to get my care streamlined because I'm, I'm 29 years old and you're telling me I have cancer. And this was July 4th and I call my dad and I'm I'm in tears. I'm trying to be as quiet as I can because my husband had worked third shift the night before so he was sleeping and I'm having a meltdown. Not being told, reading alone that my CAT scans are very suspicious for cancer. And my dad does what he can to help streamline me to get seen by a colorectal surgeon right after the holiday on July 6th, I believe, was when my colonoscopy was, and it was confirmed on a colonoscopy. 
season. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's not easy, obviously, to recall that. So thank you for sharing with the listeners, especially and raising awareness to to be a self-advocate for yourself, because I think that's so important. And one of the things you touched upon was your family's background in medicine, as well as your background in medicine. And how may your experience have differed because you were a nurse and you had your parents that were both in medicine as well, especially at the initial diagnosis steps and just fully understanding the severity of the illness that you've had? Yeah, it's needless to say, I don't think that I realized how broken our medical system was until I was a patient and experiencing it for myself. Prior to my abdominal pain about a year ago, I had seen a gastroenterologist for like some very benign like constipation and bloating, and I was brushed off and nobody had cared. And at that point, when I had seen a gastroenterologist, I was a nurse. So I think that being in healthcare, you know the right things to ask and the right things to say to get somebody's attention. And for so long, like some of like these vague symptoms that I had been experiencing weren't taken seriously. Even at one point, I had seen my doctor maybe sometime in March when I was having my abdominal pain and I had told them that I don't really know what it is, that it might be IBS, but I wasn't having any other symptoms like bowel changes or blood or any other symptoms that would have led them straight away to doing some other testing. And I think that it's hard when you can, you can only be your best advocate when you have the right information. And as somebody who works in medicine, like I should be able to be my best advocate. And that's, it's still really hard to do what you can to advocate for yourself. I wish that our system was better at getting people what they needed and getting it to them sooner. Yeah, I appreciate you touching upon that a little bit, because I think that that helps guide the conversation to the next point. And we're going to flip it a little bit and kind of go into maybe a more, I guess, humor area. So, so I saw on your Instagram that you named your tumor Moby Dick. So can you kind of talk a little bit about how you used humor within coping as well as your experience so far to kind of help yourself understand your illness? I think that I've always used humor to cope, especially in nursing. That's something that is just kind of constant among the profession is that you have like this sense of dark humor to deal with what's uncomfortable, poor patient scenarios, poor interactions with doctors death, dying, violence in in medicine against healthcare professionals. So dark humor has been something that I've always utilized, but I think in a way it's also kind of a a protective mechanism, right? If I'm the first one to make a joke, nobody else can make a joke that's going to be more damaging than the one that I've made about myself. And it's, it's gotten pretty dark to the point where you know, my family was out for Mexican food one night. And for some reason, there was a clown there. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Either way, we were not digging this clown. And 
I absolutely pulled the cancer card with this clown and he came over and approached us. I'm like, no, sir, we're planning my funeral. This is not the time. I mean, we weren't planning my funeral. I mean, we might be planning my funeral very shortly, like in the future, but we weren't planning it tonight, but he didn't know what to do. So he walked away and that, that excused us from the, the uncomfortable interaction with a Mexican restaurant clown. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, a thing that a lot of cancer patients do. I mean, I know from my personal experience, as well as many others that I've talked to, it's using humor where you can. I love what you said about being the first one to say it, so then they can't make it any more awkward. And moving into that area, you know, use the phrase not dead yet. And it's a phrase that you shared with me as the way you live your life. Where did this phrase originate? And kind of how do you continue to live it? You know, the the original phrase, not dead yet, came from a friend who had had an aunt or, an, or her aunt's friend who had had these not dead yet dinners to celebrate the fact that she wasn't dead yet with her cancer. And that's something that my, my friends have started to do as well. We had Indian together as a group last month. Our not dead yet dinner was last night where we did nachos and tacos. So it's really just like just celebrating the fact that the perspective that life's good until it's not. And that, you know, I'm just trying to get what I can and celebrate my good days. But not only that, I feel like I've embraced this not being dead yet from other things that I've seen in the media where... I feel like I read a New York Times op-ed about a woman with lung cancer and on her birthday cake, instead of saying happy birthday, it was written, not dead, just resting. (laughs) And there was this wonderful documentary from a woman that I had found on Instagram who had coined the phrase being fun and dying. And I just loved it. I mean, yes, be fun and dying. And I just want to live as much life as I can while I'm dying, living while I'm dying. Great. And celebrating every day that I have. That's still good. I love how you put that into perspective. And I think it's really good for our listeners to hear this mindset and how you live your life is very inspirational to me. And it's very inspirational to others. To expand a little further than that, how can listeners, whether they're cancer patients or not, live your philosophy of not dead yet? I think it's important to get out of your your head and try to take things into perspective, which is so hard until you actually experience it, right? I was very much committed to the grind before I got sick. Like I was living the grind, right? I was working full time. I was basically full time in a nurse anesthesia program, trying to do it all. Like I was trying my best to do it all. And I don't know how much living I was really doing at that point. And I think that it's important to take it into perspective that life can happen and it's important to try to enjoy it and find the little things that bring you joy and being with the ones that you love and making the memories that you want. And if you want to be committed to the grind, then do it. You know what I mean? If that's, if that's what your definition of, you know, of 
of living is like and not being dead yet, then absolutely. If I had my way to go back to work, I'd absolutely still go back to work. Like all I want to do is like, is have part of my old life back. But I don't, I don't think that that's really in the cards for me. And I think that it's, it's really just leading the life that you absolutely want. And hopefully you don't have to wait for a cancer diagnosis to give you that wake up to do it. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I know for you, exercise as well as your dog is are two of the big things that kind of keep you going as well as that help you live this philosophy every day. Can you share a little bit about the importance of both of them in your life? So my relationship with fitness and my wellness has really changed. You know, prior to being diagnosed, I would work out four to five times a week. Like I I loved working out. And with the progression of my disease and with recovering from surgery, there's just days where I just don't, I don't feel it. And it's given me this new perspective on trying to honor what my body wants and needs. And if I feel well enough to work out and ride my Peloton, then hell yeah, I'm going to ride my Peloton. And if I don't feel like riding my Peloton and I need to snuggle on the couch with my dog, Teddy, then I'm going to do that that day instead. And I think that not only with like exercise, I try to live each day like I can. So if I'm feeling good, I'm going to work out. But I've also changed my relationship with food where I was first off at being 29 years old, like working out the way that I did and eating the way that I did. I was not the picture of someone who was supposed to have colon cancer, right? Like I was the type of person who, if we were having a pizza party at work, I wasn't going to eat the pizza. I was going to stick to what I, the healthy thing that I packed for lunch or if I was going to have my one cheat meal, I was going to be dedicated to my one cheat meal. I've really changed that to just eating what feels good and for what I need and what tastes good. And just like having highs and lows with my energy for working out, I have good days and bad days with my food too, where like I have some days where I have such little appetite that it's a struggle to eat. And then other days I could eat a whole horse. And so I just have to take each day as it comes. Last night I had tacos and nachos and I just started new chemo today. I don't know how I'm going to feel in a couple of days. Hopefully I could eat more tacos and nachos I can if I feel like it every day. It's really just about doing what, what feels good to you. And I think that that's really important. I love what you say and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what you're saying is like just being in tune with your body being in tune with the moment every single second things may change here and there but you seem to be so in tune with just living second by second by second which i think is such a such an incredible thing to be able to do and i commend you for being able to do that thank you i mean it's in each day can be so different from morning to night and so it really is just kind of playing it year second by second minute by minute even on the drive in today, you know, some days before coming into infusion, I feel so anxious. Today, I felt like a million dollars. So I took the roof off my Jeep and we and I jammed out to some music. And some days before infusion, I felt really, I feel really nauseous and I want to eat nothing. Today, I was like, you know what? 
I feel hungry. I think I'm going to go visit my old unit and, and ransack the breakfast bar they have for nurses week. And I did. And it's, it is just living minute by minute and finding joy in everything that you can. That's great. And moving a little further on to this. So you kind of alluded to this a little bit ago that you're at a stage of your cancer diagnosis where it's progressed. You're on some palliative chemo. You're kind of moving into the direction of indirectly planning a funeral. So what would you like the earth to know about you, about your motto with the rest of the time that you have left on this earth? I think that I'd like for the world to know that I was always committed to feeling joy in every way that I could. And that although I might be on a path to my death, that it wasn't, it wasn't sad. And that, granted, there are some days where I feel sad about it. But for the most part, right now, I'm still, for the most part, living the life that I want. And that up until my diagnosis, I was very much living the life that I wanted. And that I I was a person who was well-loved and who who equally shared that love with others. I love you saying that. I, I can see it and hear it in your voice and the true genuinity and just joy that you have for life is infectious to me listening to you. It's infectious to the listeners who will be listening to this. I'm sure your colleagues, I'm sure everyone that you come in contact with is grateful to have known and know you. The next question I have is what advice do you have for young adults who are diagnosed with a metastatic disease? Well, first off, that it's always good to get a second opinion. I wish that I I would have gotten maybe a second opinion in the beginning. Not that it, I think it makes a big difference for me now, but that it's always good to have more than one opinion. And that stage four is not a death sentence. I mean, I've been so blessed with communities like Colon Town, where I'm able to connect with thousands of other people who have colon cancer. So many of them are are living long lives with their disease. And, you know, each cancer is so different, but it I think it just helps give the perspective that just because you have stage four doesn't mean that life is over. And hopefully for me, I still have a good little bit of life to go before I'm facing death directly in the face. And that hopefully that there's for everyone that there's still much life to be lived and enjoyed even with a stage four diagnosis and that there are others out there that are fighting similar fights that you are. I know that it can feel really isolating. I know that I felt really isolated alone in the beginning and even just talking to others who don't even need to share my kind of cancer just to be generally around my age and who know what it's like to be in your 20s or early 30s with cancer and how devastating it is and just know that when you're having good days or bad days there's others out there that know exactly how you feel and how good those good days are and how bad those bad days can be but that you're not alone 
Thank you for sharing that. And then the follow-up question I have for that is, what advice do you have for care providers who are working with patients that are diagnosed with a stage four illness or a severe illness? I know you've obviously seen both sides before when you were a nurse and now you're seeing it from the patient side. So do you have any advice for those listeners out there that may be care providers and not necessarily patients? For care providers, it's such a fine line, but I think that it's important to maintain hope, but staying realistic at the same time. I think that it becomes hard as a caregiver to want to stay hopeful and stay positive. I think it should be based off of a consensus of what your loved one thinks and feels as well. And, you know, just because you're realistic doesn't mean that you're crushing the hope when when you're having honest conversations about difficult treatment or, you know, whether or not your loved one's going to be here in a year, two years, five years. I know that that's been something that, like, I've really struggled with with my husband where he wants to maintain the hope and doesn't know how to maintain hope and be realistic when I'm a very realistic person. And I'm all about remaining hopeful and realistic at the same time. But I've we've had to have a lot of honest conversations that it, it's not realistic to talk about a cure anymore, that a cure is just not in the cards for me. And we've had a lot of fights about it. It's a difficult line to walk. And I think that that's something to be definitely explored together. And for caregivers, caregivers need not much, just as much as support as, as the patients do. Caregiving is a very hard job, and caregivers do not get it don't don't do not get enough credit for all the things that they do. And it's important for them to find the resources that they need and have someone good to talk to about what they're feeling. And I think about topics of like prolonged grief or like complicated grief from being a caregiver. And that's something that I never hoped for, for my husband and for my parents. And that once it comes time, they're able to find peace and that they, they don't suffer. And for caregivers to be honest about what their needs are as well and to ask for help and that it's okay that you don't, you don't do it all. And I know that it's really hard as, as a, not only a patient, but as a caregiver to ask for what you need, especially in a world where once someone finds out your diagnosis, they're like, let me know what you need. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, great. I won't <laughs> like, I just, I just won't. And I think it's for patients and for caregivers, it's good to surround yourself with people who hopefully are able to support both patient and caregiver and know just how to support without being asked and to not burn yourself out in the process. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And it can just be really, really hard if you feel like you're doing it alone. I appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate the way that you brought that down to terms, obviously, that many individuals can resonate with being that you have caregivers that want to do, 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 do because they want to be the individuals that can cure or help or whatever it may be. And then bring into the terms of 
realistic and hopeful. I think we often use those as you can't use them together, but they need to be used together, obviously, in circumstances like your own. And then the other thing is you touched upon resources. So I know you kind of talked about Colon Town as well as some the other different resources that you use. What are some resources specifically for colon cancer as well as other types of cancer that you may have used along your journey? For me, Colon Town has been huge. I wish that I had found Colon Town sooner. You know, their their reach is so far that they have so many specialized subgroups within Colon Town. Like they have like a like a young adult group, they have a women's group, they've got groups that are designated by each area of diagnosis by like like where your primary was in your colon where like all of your secondary metastases are like there's a liver metastases group there's like a like a an abdominal wall like peritoneal lining group and when i was still investigating curative treatments they have all of these different curative treatment segregated groups like it is like this huge resource umbrella that not only was it good just to be able to talk to strangers on Facebook who knew exactly what I was going through. But if I had a question, I would just shoot a random question out on the Facebook page and 20 people would respond. Or when I got the heartbreaking news that my disease had progressed, not just the first time, but the second time, you know, I posted on Colon Town and just shared my news and the outpour of support from people who could empathize and and feel how crushing that was with me. Other good resources for for colon cancer would be like Fight CRC or the Colon Cancer Alliance. When when I was a patient at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they had a wonderful adolescent and young adult program that was very helpful for young cancer patients with children. I mean, although I don't have children, I found that the Bright Spot Network was very helpful. I think that I I just wish that someone would have helped me find those resources earlier on and that there was an easier place where I could have gone to look for things and found it. Like it's like so, so much stuff gets kind of lost in the shuffle, even when you're trying to do just a basic Google search. But for someone to be like, hey, this is a really good resource, like this is what you're going to want to look at, I think would have been really helpful. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And maybe one more question left. I know you have mentioned before when we were talking a little bit before this is you want to continue to advocate. You obviously want to continue to push moving forward with your time left, kind of what are your next steps as far as the advocacy space or just continuing to share your story with the hopes of impacting others? I hope to maybe get a little bit better as a social media manager for my cancer Instagram. I haven't been very good at at sharing on it. Just for a long time, I felt very compelled to be secretive about my diagnosis which I'm, I'm not feeling that way so much anymore. And I'd like to do like more things 
for building the adolescent and young adult program here at Penn State and seeing like what we can do to create some outreach here just to, to serve this community that needs so much. And there's so many things that can be explored that can be helpful. Great. Thanks for sharing that. And how can people get in contact with you if they want to talk to you more about your story, if they want to learn more, if they want to advocate with you? What are the best mediums of communication with Kayla? They can use my my personal Instagram if they would like, which is at Kayla Darling. It's C-A-Y-L-A. D-A-R-L-I-N-G or my my cancer specific Instagram, which is F-U colon cancer, F-U-C-O-L-O-N-C-A-N-C-R. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And you even use a little humor within your handle for Instagram. I just want to thank you once again for being honest, being open with our listeners. I think a lot of people will gain valuable information, whether it be a patient, a caregiver, a care provider, anybody that listens to this is going to gain a lot from you, as well as learn from your not dead yet mentality. And I think it shows within the joy that you provided me, at least in this small conversation, as well as the joy you provide the world. So, you know, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Awesome. So thank you for listening to Life One Pause. Like what you heard, please like, download, and share with a friend. Until next time, keep being you. Thanks for listening to Life on Pause. Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next time. time.